We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. NFL podcast. Yes, this is Joe Bartle once again filling in for John McKechnie. As of this recording right now, he's probably nearing the return to Madison. He was, he was right. If I was understanding this correctly, Mario, he was uh, in Maryland, right? And now he's, yes. he's coming back. So, so we, we now finally have the glorious mustache that is John McKechnie going to be in our Rotoware offices at like mere hours, it feels like, which is, which is good news for everybody. Yeah, he he and his mustache have been clearing the highways of the the Midwest, <laughs> cleaning them up on his way back for, from uh, the, the Maryland D.C. area, as I understand it, um, bring no doubt a lot of pollen and such things with him. So hopefully, hopefully he's not too like exhausted and like overexposed to the elements after his uh, I guess it's like a thirteen or fourteen hour drive, something like that. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, a lot, a lot of time with the road for John right now. Good guy John McKechnie is, is doing us all a favor and trying to clear things out. Every every Wednesday or so, uh, most of the members of Rotoware 
get together and do just a conference call of sorts, as I imagine most businesses do out there right now on Zoom, and, and we see each other's faces, and it's all great and dandy. But I feel like the presence of John when he comes in is always one of the things that I'm looking forward to the most, just to see the type of growth that has happened with his mustache. I'm not sure if he's going to share a picture of it on Twitter at any point, or maybe after we've now called him out uh, on the podcast, he'll he'll be glad to display that or not. But it is something that uh, you know I'm excited to see around the office a little bit more when there are people in the office, of course. Uh, we are still I should probably preface, we are still practicing social distancing here in Madison. And you I don't know. get to see the mustache even when it gets back, Joe. You gotta <laughs> wait. Right. You gotta wait for a vaccine. That's that's what I'm saying though. I need I need a Twitter picture of this. John, if you listen to this podcast, we, we need more proof. Twitter needs more proof uh, of, of what you got going on because it's incredible. And I, I'm I'm very envious of it as well. This is by no means shaming it. I, I wish I could have Oh, of course not. No. I, I wish I could have that kind of depth. All right, well, we, we talked enough about John's mustache. We probably should discuss a little bit of fantasy football. Uh, the meat of the podcast, I think, is going to be kind of basing around your soon-to-be-released articles um, on some of the ADP players of the Steelers, Chargers, and a few other things that you've noticed so far in the kind of weird off-season period that we have right now, really before drafts start to pick up. But we'd be remiss not to discuss a little bit of information that came actually uh, after our recording last week and I think it's got kind of big news for at least one running back. Carlos Hyde signed a one-year contract with the Seahawks. The following day, it was announced that he actually had shoulder. Oh, wow! He actually had shoulder surgery, so he could be out up until uh, the start of the preseason, or what we'd anticipate the preseason to look like in a normal off-season period. That being said, this is a running back that had over a thousand rushing yards. Chris Carson had fumble concerns, or at least. Pete Carroll is frustrated about. They did draft a running back in the fourth round, and they still have uh, the, oh, my, I got that. They still have the guy that they draft in the first round as well, or Rashad Penny, uh, in that backfield as well. Does this have any concerns for Chris Carson's value, in your opinion? I don't think it does, and I think it's particularly all clear for Carson because I think his ADP has fallen a little bit. Like I, I don't want to say that too uh Emphatically, but I saw some people expressing concern about Hyde relative to Carson and, and suggesting that Carson would fall from around the fourth sort of eight, fourth round ADP into the fifth, which I think would be a huge mistake to let him fall into the fifth of a draft because um, that that same running back pinch as last year that market pinch is happening in that kind of like third through fifth round range where it becomes a dead zone and people start overpaying for these kind of just in my opinion, in most cases, too risky of picks. Um, Carson is one of the few guys who I think is definitely the best option on his on his team, uh, who is also on a run-heavy team, and who also is a uh, running back who catches a lot of passes. Or at least last year, he caught a lot more passes than he did previously. And he's always been pretty good at it in the NFL. Like he's, he seems like a good pass catcher. Uh, the injury concerns, of course, are very much valid. He's basically been hurt more years than he hasn't been going back to his Oklahoma State career. The fumbles are a concern. Um, I just, I, I feel like it's a couple things. I feel like he probably won't be a fumbling liability this year like he was last. Uh, it, it wasn't such a pronounced problem before, and not when sometimes that stuff catches you in season, when it comes out of nowhere in season, it might be harder, or I would guess anyway, that it would be harder for a player, a running back, to get like the training to, to really... Uh, fix it because it's like they also have to worry about game planning and whatever else that happens in the season and in the offseason you can kind of more like 
meet up with a very specialized sort of coach and, and do very specialized drills a long time every day or however long you need to to get it fixed. So fingers crossed that he's not fumbling quite as much this year. Um, and I think that if so, if he's not fumbling a, a whole lot, then he, he's just a way better runner and pass catcher, especially pass catcher. Um, but also I think he's way, way better than Carlos Hyde as a runner. So if, if Carson is healthy and as long as he's not fumbling at an outrageous pace, I think Hyde is just a backup. And I don't know what's going on with Penny. It's pretty disheartening, really, the the way his career has gone so far because he's, he's basically been good every time the Seahawks put him on the field. And last year they finally started putting him on the field because of the Carson fumbles. Like they were basically keeping Penny on the bench. Uh, and I like Carson enough, but it's it's ridiculous because they basically kept Penny on the bench because he doesn't run as uh, hard and he doesn't stomp as much when he's running and it's not as cool looking. He doesn't go like doosh, doosh when he's running like Carson does, and that's boring. Um, but it's like, well, Penny just runs away from defenses when he's healthy. He's 220 guy, runs a mid 4-4, was, was a big playback at San Diego State, like very few running backs in college football history ever have been. Um, but that knee injury he had last year – I don't know what's going on with it. I don't know if anyone knows for sure what's going on with it, but uh, it, it could, I mean, worst case scenario, it sounds like it might kind of be like a Marcus Lattimore kind of thing. I hope to God not, but uh, they said there was basically the ACL tear and then additional kind of like unspecified damage. And uh, they're, they've very early into this off season pretty much ruled out the possibility of him playing in the first six weeks or, or they're going to put him on the PUP list, they said. Uh, so for something like that to get declared early doesn't look so great in my opinion because I would have guessed if, if it was looking vaguely good, especially the way Pete Carroll talked. I mean that guy just uh, you know over sells up everything, and I would have guessed he would have been more of a tone like, yeah, we're expecting Rashad. Rashad's got a great chance to get back week one. We really hope we can have him week one on the field. Um, but instead they just kind of didn't talk about him, and when it came up, they're like, yeah, he's probably going on the PUP list. Uh, the Carlos Hyde signing certainly reinforces that idea. So, yeah, that they were this certain this early that Penny wouldn't be able to play in the first six weeks uh, makes me worry about what happens even when he does uh, have eligibility off the PUP list. Maybe Hyde is the back of all year. But the way I saw it, uh, I read the Carlos Hyde signing as actually reassuring for Carson because if, if Penny can't play, Hyde's a lot worse than Penny. And if Carson's on the field... I think Hyde is less threatening to him than Penny would be. So I, I, if anything, saw it as a reason to feel more certain that Carson's workload was safe. Because you're not expecting Hyde to threaten anything of Carson. Like if Carson and Hyde are healthy, Carson is not fumbling it, they're simply not going to be putting Hyde out there to take any carries other than maybe two or three, right? Like that's kind of the rationale you're, you're going with this? That's how I see it. I mean, Carlos Hyde is pretty fast for how big he is, but he's not that fast. And he doesn't actually break tackles that much. He's kind of, he's got like anchor strength where he, he will fall forward and he won't get knocked back. But all his size and speed never really amounted to any functional power as a runner. Like he doesn't break tackles and then keep running after the missed tackle. He just kind of goes down and falls forward every time. And I guess his vision must not be that great because he, he really should be more elusive than he is, but he's been very sluggish. Uh, I know he put up the good numbers last year in Houston, but I think if you watch, he basically just had good blocking. He didn't actually really break tackles or make anybody miss. He still wasn't as good as Duke Johnson, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Carlos Hyde just, isn't very good. I think as far as backup runners go, he's no better than average. So I, I think Rashad Penny would be well above average as a backup. 
I just don't understand what the choice was to then draft DJ Dallas in the fourth round as well. Like they've committed yeah. a ton of resources to that backfield. And and my my thought is you can't just do all of that for Penny, right? Like that that you can't sign Hyde, you can't draft DJ Dallas, you can't continue to use Travis Homer or talk about using Travis Homer like Carroll has before. And then also have room to have Carson get 20 plus carries a game, even in that offense that, as you stated, is run oriented. It just, it was, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm confused by the Seahawks almost every offseason, but offensively, I'm definitely confused by their approach this go around. They're getting a little weird with, it used to be like their GM, uh, their front office would just kind of predictably pick these guys who score really high in the spark uh, composite athleticism grade. And they would just get these guys who have just like basically really high verticals at high weights, high broad jumps at high weights, high, uh, low three cone times at high weights, things like that. And they would chase these athletic guys and they would at least get guys like Bobby Wagner that way. And they'd get, um, I don't know, probably like KJ Wright. KJ Wright probably one of those. Yeah. A uh, cliff of real stuff like that. Sure. Um, so it was a good method back then, but then like the last two years they've gone totally off the rails, just making baffling picks like the Jordan, um, the, the, the linebacker this year from Texas Tech, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's he's a decent-looking prospect, I think. Still was very surprising that they took him there. And, and the year before, that LJ Collier pick was just one of the worst I've ever seen. And, and in both cases, or especially the Collier case, it's like, this guy had bad spark scores. I don't get it. It's like they're just kind of getting a little, uh, um, I don't know. Are they they're just they're, their process? Are they, they going to overthink it? Like they're just getting kooky in old age. I don't know, um, but it's 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 weird the way they're going. I I agree. I didn't like the GJ Dallas pick, but the way I see it is Pete Carroll's just committed to having at least three running backs active in every single game, and ideally four. And I don't know if that's just kind of he's a little bit scarred from the injuries that happened to Chris Carson and CJ Process and Thomas Rawls and now Rashad Penny, and maybe he just he's just kind of. PTSD by running back injuries and just needs a lot of running backs to feel safe now. I don't know what it is, but that's my best guess. So I think he's going to keep uh, Hyde, uh, DJ Dallas, Travis Homer, Chris Carson all on the roster going into the year. And then I think when Penny's eligible off the PUP list, it's either like if one of Homer or Dallas is nicked up at the time, they might go on IR or they'll cut Hyde or Penny will get put on IR and won't play at all. And this is something to point out as well, maybe to follow along with that. I think the NFL just enacted a rule this past couple days ago where now the injured return list or bringing guys somebody off an injured reserve, you have three now. You have three opportunities to bring a player off injured reserve instead of the normal two. That might play into that thought process. And you can't predict what injuries are going to occur seven months from now in a given NFL season, especially one as weird as this offseason has begun. If the Seahawks had signed Devonta Freeman, I would have been more concerned about Chris Carson's workload. I agree. Because as you mentioned, he caught 37 passes last year and 20 the year before that. Like they use him at least somewhat in in a receiving aspect where you just where it's not like, "Oh, okay, Jordan Howard's out there, you know they're going to run with him, right?" Or, "Okay, they're, they're not going to throw it to him anyway." That kind of thing. I don't I don't know if you can say that about Chris Carson anymore, but Devonta Freeman is a much better receiver than Chris Carson is. And if they had went that direction, which it's they were interested in him, then then I would be way more yeah. concerned about Carson's statuses. But with Carlos Hyde, I agree with you. And we were saying it last year too when he was traded to the Texans. He's just not a good player. I, I, like he's, he's also he's average. Yeah, he's also a uniquely ineffective pass catcher specifically. So uh, he's not as good of a pure runner as many running backs in particular, but definitely he's not as good as a pure runner as Carson. And 
he's just worse than everybody as a receiver. So I, I just don't really see how Hyde it, – it's almost like I, I would I would care about Hyde as much as I would have cared if it was uh, like two years ago when they signed Alfred Morris or something like that. No, oh, yeah. That's a – that's actually a good. Question. I just don't think he's very good. No, I, I'm I'm right there with you, and and I'm I'm disappointed about the Rashad Penny news, and I agree with you. I mean, it's not news; it was out early May, but I'm I agree with you that normally they're so optimistic about things. You would have thought maybe they'd even lie. Uh, right. I shouldn't say lie, or like maybe maybe uh, bend the truth, so to speak. But to say already, yeah, he's probably going to be in the public. They're worried about him. That's I think they're pretty clearly worried about him. Yeah, that's that's something that's something to monitor at least moving forward. And you and I think kind of confirms or solidifies what Chris Carson's value could be in the event that Carlos Hyde is the premier back. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. All right, well, that was the news basically from last week. There was a little bit of news that came out earlier today I thought at least was worthy talking about in the preamble leading up to our article discussion that you are going to be posting probably, what is it going to be next week, you think? or yeah? Um, I'm probably going gonna, gonna to try to get one of them done tomorrow saturday or sunday i'm i'm in a weird position right now because i'm trying to move and uh it's i i'm just kind of um trying to balance moving with like college football projections and like last week was magazine stuff for the um or not magazine stuff like site stuff for the idps and things like that so i'm i'm a little disjointed right now but like basically i've got my pittsburgh steelers projections done and i'm i'm kind of working on a similar thing with uh the chargers so i'm, I'm gonna be talking about basically like deontay johnson and austin Eckler quite a bit in those things and uh you know i'll post about it when i'm when i'm closing when i figure out which one i'm closer on but i'm, I'm kind of uh scrambling to, to to get myself oriented in the meantime and don't really know for sure Perfect. Well, I, I didn't realize that the uh, mutant mosquitoes that you discussed with John two podcasts ago really needed to force you out of your apartment. But yeah, I'm already done. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I had to get out. That was and, that was and, the last. You know, that was the last apartment. That's the other on. thing. That's the other reason why I'm so distracted <laughs> is I'm like at war with them at the same time. So yeah, you you understand. I you know well I don't know if I understand, but I I can I you can understand, understand it's, your it's normal stuff. <laughs> All right. No, this year distracting me. I wanted to talk about the the Baltimore Ravens backfield. Justice Hill, coach John Harbaugh said that Hill was going to be taking a quote unquote big step forward this second season. Now that's the type of conversation that I anticipate hearing from Pete Carroll every single time he goes to the podium. I wasn't thinking Harbaugh would say something about about that, especially Hill. When they drafted J.K. Dobbins in the second round, they still have Gus Edwards. Mark Ingram still has, you'd imagine, one more year on his contract with the Ravens. I think that's a pretty asinine thing to say about Hill, but maybe they have a role for him moving forward. Like, how did you view those comments, or or what do you think the Ravens' backfield is going to look like? I think it's mostly sincere what Harbaugh is saying. I know that they have four running backs now, and they all seem, in their own ways, pretty and certainly like the other three are already established uh, Ingram and Edwards on the basis of what they did last year and Dobbins on the basis of his draft capital. But um, as much as Hill is fourth among those guys right now, 
I'm kind of expecting this to be the last year that Ingram comes out as the starter because it's a couple things. It's both like his age and his his injury history in the first half of his career. But it's also just that I think Dobbins is that good of a running back. Like he never should have been on the board when the Ravens made that pick because the Rams should have taken him instead of Cam Akers. So for the, for the Ravens to take Dobbins, it's not quite the same as if they had traded up for him or something like that because it was more a best player available uh, luxury pick kind of thing than it was an indictment of or, or any sort of indication at all about Ingram or Edwards or Hill. But I think it was especially easy for them to, to make that pick because Gus Edwards, I think he's playing on an exclusive rights free agent one-year contract this year, in which case he would at least be a restricted free agent next year. I don't know. I don't can't remember if he would be unrestricted or restricted, but um, their analytics uh, information might kind of be, it, it might be telling them to expect him to sign with another team because I know no one really cares about Gus Edwards, but if you look at what he's done, he's actually been automatic as a runner for the Ravens. Like he's, he's just always been effective when they've given him the ball over five yards of carry both years when he needed to start late last year after Ingram got hurt, he rolled. So there's reason to think that Gus Edwards, if he's a free agent could have some sort of market and maybe they're just assuming that he'd be gone. And then, you know, so maybe they looked at it as like next year, there's a coin flips chance that Dobbins is the starter and justice Hill is the backup. So I think they could mean it. Like they just, they just kind of stumbled into a player as good as Dobbins. And um, sometimes when that happens, you just got to sort of accommodate them, uh, even if you don't really want to demote the other guys. Yeah, it felt like a luxury pick, but a, a certainly a, a good luxury pick. And you mentioned Gus yeah. Edwards' contract. Mark Ingram, again, I mentioned earlier, he has just one year left in his deal. I don't know if there's going to be a trade market that surfaces for a guy like Mark Ingram at this stage in his career. And he's getting relatively highly paid as well. I think that's like you have to mention that, too, if you're talking about possible trade for him. And you'd have to imagine Dobbins then has to really impress over what virtual OTAs. Like it just doesn't. It seems unlikely for all those things to happen for the Ravens to either cut Ingram or trade him to somebody else. I don't know how Justice Hill has a big step forward this season. I just don't. Sorry, no. I mean, I was. I meant in twenty twenty one. That stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but what, Ingram's not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Carbo said, this season Justice Hill's taking a step forward, and like for a lot of people last year. He was a really – I know a lot of best ball leagues. He was that guy that was taken in the 12th, 13th, 14th yeah. round that maybe could end up getting 700-plus yards and be a great steal, and that never happened. And I think when you see that comment from Harbaugh, you could say, oh, it's the same thing going to happen, or maybe Hill's going to be used in more of a pass-catching role. And I just don't know if that's going to happen when Ingram is okay enough. Dobbins, I think, can certainly be a good pass-catcher, and Gus Edwards can do it too. Like they're, I don't think Hill is necessarily slotted into this receiving role um, that and that's the only way I can right. see him really being the improvement that Harbaugh says he could. Yeah, sorry. To be clear, he's probably not going to do much this year. He might do even less than he did last year, but he could still be a player that the the Ravens sincerely value. So, for instance, I guess uh, we're, even though I wouldn't draft Justice Hill in redraft or, or best ball or whatever this year, I would even as someone who didn't really like him as much as a prospect as a lot of people, I would still consider making a, a buy low offer on him in a dynasty format. Cause I really do think there's a good chance that he's the backup to Dobbins in 2021. And you know, the backup to Dobbins is probably going to play quite a bit. Like Edwards played quite a bit um, behind Ingram 
last year. So uh, the thing about Hill is a couple things. Like he's still young. He's he's only 22. He'll only be 23 in November, and he's pretty light. And he used to be very skinny. He's a naturally skinny running back because he showed up to Oklahoma State at 170 pounds. So that 200 he's listed at right now is actually all added weight, and he's still kind of smallish. But um, because he's only 22, I think you'll see him get closer to like 205, 208, 210, something like that. And that will be his more kind of final form. And I think that's what the, the, the Ravens are more waiting on. They're, they're thinking in a year he'll be a little bit different physically. He'll know better what he's doing and then we can really use him. And uh, to them in the meantime, they don't really care that he, he's maybe – you know, limited in various ways because they, they just don't really feel any pressure to rush him really. But um, I think I think people who were overrating him last year and people are so bad about prospects sometimes. I mean, the people were it, people talk about like Naheem Hines and Justice Hill, like they're going to be stars because they saw some highlight videos and stuff like that. And then once they turn out to be, you know, fantasy busts and redraft. Yeah, like you said, like people the next year just pretend they don't exist or something like that, uh, perhaps out of shame. But uh, Justice Hill's career was never it was never fair to expect him to be good last year. Like he was too physically underdeveloped, too young, too much competition there. Edwards was too good already, stuff like that. But uh, in in the longer run, he can still be good. It's just kind of like sometimes we, we make too high of expectations too soon with these guys. Is there a rookie this year that you feel fits that Justice Hill mold that he could very well be good, but he's just not going to be in a situation. He might not be talent wise ready enough. Like that's there's a lot of different names that are bouncing around my head, but I feel like you yeah. probably have a better target as to who could be that Justice Hill of, of 2020. As far as the guy that people will see highlights of and, and freak out about for no good reason, or, you know, some good reason, but generally too much, too much uh, enthusiasm. Uh, Darrington Evans, the third round pick for Tennessee out of Appalachian State, he should be fine. Um, but people are all, I've seen people do back around uh, draft season the thing that they were doing with Justice Hill in preseason last year. Like they see one highlight of him doing a spin move or something, and they just they decide they this one. guy is a playmaker, and they they just don't grasp the broader context of things and it's like Darrington Evans is a fast player he ran that 441 at the uh, 44140 at the combine um but he ran it at like 510 203 or something like that and it, that's one of those deals there that's the same that's that's 3 pounds heavier at the same uh height as, as Justice Hill by the way Justice Hill ran a 44 flat and we already saw last year that that detail alone didn't mean a whole lot. But I think when you see the, somebody in the preseason is going to see Darrington Evans run for a 50-yard touchdown, and they're going to be like, oh, man, he's fast. Look at this, 4-4-1. And they don't know the, how to put the broader context into play, and they're going to overrate him a little. Um, to be fair, though, if Derrick Henry gets hurt, then Evanton, Evans will probably be very productive because they don't really have any other running backs like Dalen Dawkins right. is their backup or something. Um, but in, in any case, I think people are going, are, are going to overrate Evans. Like you might even see some people saying like, Oh man, he's might he might steal some Henry touches or something. Um, but the other one and the one who I'm a little more concerned for yet is Anthony McFarland, who I actually like quite a bit. I like him more than I, I did justice Hill. Um, I guess we'll talk about him a little bit with the Steelers thing, but he's, he's a guy who's just uh 
he's competing with a fourth round pick from last year and then Jalen Samuels who I know a lot of people don't like him but he's one of the very best pass catching running back uh, pass catchers among running backs and he's a very good athlete and he might be the best athlete among the Steelers running backs so uh, with Snell and Samuels there I'm a little worried that McFarland might not have an easy way onto the field and yet I, I think I've seen people take him in something like the 16th round or something like that of best ball drafts I wouldn't draft him myself in any round you're right I, I also like Anthony McFarland too I think I, I was in on the running in our Rotowire Dynasty League to try to acquire him before and a few of the auto no leagues that I don't think you're a part of anymore um but no there's, there's a few that are uh rotoware affiliate or rotoware is a part of i think i have them at least one or two so but I, I i recognize at least to the extent that going to the steelers wasn't wasn't perfect for his i like a long term yeah yeah and you're right and and this is good conversation that'll probably bleed into uh the the meat of our podcast but first i want to get a word from our sponsors dynasty owner the best fantasy football leagues are those where every owner constantly pays attention, responds to trade offers, changes their lineup, and are always looking to improve their team. There's no offseason for these owners, and that's who you're challenging yourself against in Dynasty Owner, other elite fantasy football players who are committed to competing. Dynasty Owner is the only fantasy football platform with a patent game used actual NFL salaries and contracts. Combine this with a salary cap, elite trading options, advanced team rosters, and devoted elite owners to compete against and you're faced with the same decision NFL owners and general managers must make every single time. If you're ready to take on the best, then don't miss out. Join the wait list at DynastyOwner.com. All right, so we kind of were foreshadowing this conversation a little bit. The Steelers overall is going to be a focal point for one of your upcoming articles here, and it's focusing a little bit on the ADP musings, so to speak. But really, the conversation started, or at least developed on this article idea, around Deontay Johnson, right? Yeah, so he's a player, just to start with, I was too low on him coming out of Toledo. I was pretty surprised when the Steelers took him in the third round. And the basic reason for that was he had production at Toledo, but at a glance, and my failure at this was that I didn't look beyond the glance, basically, but at a glance, his production was not better than John Vea Johnson and Cody Thompson, these two other Toledo receivers who are just kind of practice squad guys right now. And the other, the only other thing about Deontay Johnson that I could tell was like, he's, he's a mediocre athlete. He, he might be one of those guys who's kind of just faster and quicker than he tested, but his testing was bad. So I was surprised when he went in the third round, I was surprised how closely he went to player to a player like, uh, you know, DK Metcalf. I thought it, I thought it was a, a pretty you know, big gap between them. Right. I still do believe that. Uh, but I, I underestimated him and in his rookie season generally caught me by surprise. Um, but there are there's a kind of an emerging enthusiasm for Deontay Johnson and in, in some of the, the fantasy industry, fantasy community circles on Twitter, especially. And I was just kind of caught off guard by how enthusiastic some of it was. And I, I, I haven't specifically like interrogated people about it as to what they think will happen exactly. But to be so high on Deontay Johnson that you're kind of working yourself up to sort of a sixth round valuation in redraft, which is, uh, so to, to be clear right now, he's not going quite that high. He's, he's, uh, in the last seven days and the best ball, 10, uh, best ball drafts, he's 99th, I think, or, or wait, no, I'm probably doing that thing where I forgot to hit the, uh, 12 team. Not, no, I don't know why this is, why this is giving me goofy numbers. Um, let me, I'm going to refresh it. Okay. It's 83rd. Sorry. 
He's going 83rd, which th- that's uh, that's already a bit high for me to be honest. But I, I saw like the highest pick was 65th overall, which is in the sixth round, the fifth pick of the sixth round. So I thought that was too high, and I thought that to believe that Deontay Johnson is worth that pick, you almost have to believe that he's going to break even with Juju Smith-Schuster, and then in addition to that, take quite a bit of a share from James Washington too, and. I just didn't really see the basis for that. Um, did you have any particular uh, reception of Deontay Johnson's rookie year or, any, or anything going into his second season? I, I well, this this kind of I, I kind of tipped off, or I was aware of my own thoughts, and I do this a lot for politics. So I'm glad that finally somebody decided to get me to do this for fantasy football as well. But Jerry Donovan Dean, who does a lot of great work for us on the site, we talk about him all the time. Um, I probably mentioned him once a podcast, and I have no idea why. He's not paying me, although he probably should for the exposure. Uh, was talking about Deontay Johnson as well, and it, it felt like it was a conversation that he was having with the rest of the fantasy industry. But when yeah. he said it, I thought he was speaking to me, and I don't think I necessarily messaged him back on it, but I'm like, oh, man, okay, so wait a minute. If Mario was saying this about Deontay Johnson – and Jerry's saying this about Deontay Johnson, and both these guys are incredibly smart people who I only wish I could be intelligent with. Well, maybe Jerry is. <laughs> I'm not just patting on the back right here, Mario, Mar- because we're talking. I, I believe that. So if both of you guys are saying this, I had to dive into it a little bit more. And and for me, I do a little bit more of the watching of the film, but also the statistics that go along with it. And I attributed some of what Deontay Johnson was able to do to the lack of quarterback play, and I should say lack of what Deontay Johnson was able to do. So then naturally I I found myself saying, well, hey, Ben Roethlisberger is going to come back. So therefore everyone's going to do better in the offense. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true if the offense is running effectively and efficiently. Like I think if the Steelers' uh, pie-in-the-sky dream offense is probably built around Juju Smith-Schuster getting more targets but also better opportunities with those targets, and if that's the case – then Deontay Johnson is going to lose some of those numbers because of that, right? That's the way I see it. And I thought that, um, well, it's a couple things that I think about Deontay Johnson's rookie year. I I think he was good, and I think he showed he's a good player. But you're going to have to show me a lot for me to think you're particularly close to Juju Smith-Schuster, and I still don't. I still don't think it's close, even vaguely. Uh, To compare Deontay Johnson to Juju Smith-Schuster on the basis of what they did last year is kind of a silly thing, particularly with, given what Juju Smith-Schuster did the year before, uh, and particularly given that Deontay Johnson is older than Juju Smith-Schuster, even in the fourth and second years, respectively. So Juju Smith-Schuster is better. This is this is not something worth debating, in my opinion. Some people might want to debate it. I'm not going to uh, listen to I, them. I agree. I think um, it's not even a conversation point for me. I, that's, it's a fact. Right, yeah, yeah. So... Um, what I see it as last year was Juju Smith-Schuster had all of uh, he had a turf toe or something like, or some kind of toe injury initially then he had a concussion, then he had a knee or was the concussion in the knee on the same play I can't remember, either way, three different things basically ruining the season in a season that was already ruined because of Mason Rudolph and Devlin Hodges, so what happened last year is not what I consider the most legitimate sample to compare these two players. Like, it's the kind of sample that tells me Deontay Johnson is good. It doesn't tell me that Deontay Johnson is better than Juju Smith-Schuster because Deontay Johnson apparently played through a sports hernia, and I've seen people try to equate the sports hernia to a toe-knee concussion trifecta. Have at it. I don't believe that's true. I think Juju clearly had more to deal with, and I, I think he was clearly more limited by injury. 
Um, so what I see it as is like a botched sample. And I think if Juju Smith-Schuster is dealing if Juju Smith-Schuster isn't dealing with the toe injury, the concussion, the knee injury, then he's instead Juju Smith-Schuster, the guy from two years ago who put up whatever it was, 1,400 yards in his age 21 season, starting slot receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers, which means if he's playing in the slot, then he's playing closer to the quarterback than Deontay Johnson, which is bad because Deontay Johnson's average depth of target last year seemed somewhat to depend on being close to the quarterback because his average depth of target playing mostly outside was 9.1 yards. Juju Smith-Schuster playing mostly in the slot had 9.2 yards average depth of target. So if Deontay Johnson needs to be underneath to to apply to the game the way he did last year, then the way he applied to the game last year will, I think, largely get overruled by Juju Smith-Schuster's presence because they're competing for the same thing. Juju Smith-Schuster's better. That's kind of all it really takes for me to, to be out on Deontay Johnson at his current market. Um, because if, if Juju Smith-Schuster's in the slot and Juju Smith-Schuster's better on the underneath generally, he just gets another advantage he doesn't need by being close to the quarterback, more proximate in, in the lateral sense. Like he's closer, he's he's the same depth closeness, but he's laterally closer, making him easier to hit, even though he doesn't need that advantage. Like he's going to be the favored target no matter where he's lined up on it. So that structural detail, I think, is a severely limiting factor for Deontay Johnson in 2020. Uh, if Juju Smith-Schuster gets hurt again, though, I mean, or if in a year, if Juju Smith-Schuster walks in free agency, then Deontay Johnson should go nuts. And I think in Dynasty, he's definitely a, a much more valuable asset than he is in redraft, in my opinion, because if Juju Smith-Schuster walks, then yeah, he's, he's going to be good. That's It's just that simple. But in the meantime, it's just as simple. Similarly, in my opinion, that if Juju's on the field, Deontay Johnson is at best the second receiver. And then even when you get to that discussion, James Washington is somebody I don't think you can just push aside. So that's all without even bringing up Chase Claypool, who I don't even think he's going to play more than 300 or so snaps. And something like 50 to 80 of those snaps might be more in kind of a tight end sort of position that maybe comes at the expense of McDonald or Ebron. But James Washington played 15 games last year, whereas uh, Deontay Johnson played 16. And James Washington had more yards. He was targeted less, but he's the downfield receiver in that offense. So whereas Juju Smith-Schuster, I think, overrules or, or at least kind of you know trumps Deontay Johnson underneath where they both operated last year or where, and where we have reason to believe they'll both continue operating, James Washington's downfield away from them both. So Juju's generally not James Washington's problem. He's generally Deontay Johnson's problem. And uh, that Chase Claypool selection is, I think, bad news for James Washington in the long term. Uh, but the, my point remains, the guy who had more yards in 15 games last year than Deontay Johnson did in 16 is not going to be encroached uh, in his 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 functions by Juju Smith-Schuster. But Deontay Johnson will be. Can I build one more innate advantage that I see with Juju Smith-Schuster onto this equation? Roethlisberger is yeah. coming back. And I think there's an innate connection that Roethlisberger has with Juju Smith-Schuster that he does not have with Dante, Deontay Johnson. And he won't have that with this offseason. And I know that's not really a quantifiable thing, so it's hard to discuss, but we've saw it with the Packers and Jordy Nelson. We've saw like past, what, five years with Keenan Allen and Phillip Rivers. Sometimes there's a quarterback wide receiver connection that just works, and it works really well. And whether they're looking at that their way or not, and I think Juju Smith-Schuster has that relationship with Ben Roethlisberger. You don't get 111 catches in your age 21 season, like you mentioned, without having at least some confidence from your quarterback. 
And if Roethlisberger can come back to even 75% of what he is, and I think he could be more than that, which is probably the next conversation point that we'll have, but even if he's not even completely healthy, that aids, in my opinion, the fact that Juju will be the, the bigger difference maker than Deontay Johnson, at least relative to Johnson's price tag right now. Yeah, it's uh, it, to be fair, Roethlisberger, I think, threw six passes to Deontay Johnson in week one, which is you know good enough. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's true that Ben Roethlisberger will probably work better with Juju Smith-Schuster than any other receiver on the team by quite a bit, if only from, from familiarity. It's like, again, it's another advantage that Juju Smith-Schuster doesn't really need, and uh, he gets it anyway. But I think with Roethlisberger, uh, for what it's worth, I, I ran projections on, on the whole Pittsburgh offense, and what I what I came down to for Roethlisberger, this is projecting basically an increase in his turnovers and a, a slight decrease in his his depth of target, his, his yards per pass. Um, but I projected Roethlisberger... If he played 16 games, uh, 619 pass attempts, 4,568 yards, 29 touchdowns. I'm also including 17 or 18 interceptions, but we don't really care. Uh, 4,568 yards, 29 touchdowns. And I tried to take target rates on on a kind of per-snap basis for all of Juju Smith-Schuster, James Washington, Deontay Johnson. I tried to project similar uh, – I, I would project – the snap counts for them and I would take their past uh, per snap target rates to come up with these loose target figures of uh, for Juju Smith-Schuster on 960 snaps, about 150 to 155 targets. I'm projecting 750 snaps for both James Washington and Deontay Johnson. And I'm guessing this is the point where the, the fans of Deontay Johnson would disagree with me and, and uh, threaten to kill me because I think that uh, they're just overlooking James Washington. I mean, he, he does a different thing than Deontay Johnson. So they, I don't understand. Uh, I, I don't think it's sufficient to believe or for it to even be a given that Deontay Johnson is generally better than James Washington because they do different things. It doesn't really matter. It's like he's better than James Washington, but there's still a thing that James Washington does that he doesn't, and that's go deep. So the way I see it, unless they stop going deep, then James Washington will get on the field because sometimes they will want to go deep. And if, if that's the case, then it's just it doesn't matter if, if Deontay Johnson's better. He doesn't do this one thing. James Washington does. So I'm projecting 750 each. I fully concede that Deontay Johnson could go over that and, and it could be at Washington's expense. But I think for that to happen, Deontay Johnson would need to magically be faster and better downfield than we have reason to believe that he is and and better at those things than he was last year. So these are long shots to me. I'm just kind of assuming they're not going to happen. So on those 750 snaps for them both, I projected 85 targets for Washington, 101 for Deontay Johnson. I still came out to more yardage for for James Washington, 820 to 755, um, but with 13 more catches in Deontay Johnson's cage. So I basically see the baseline projection for Deontay Johnson, 67 catches, 755 yards, four or five touchdowns. For James Washington, I'm getting 54 catches for 820 and four touchdowns. For Juju, I'm getting 104 catches, 1,284 yards and seven touchdowns. So that's how I'm valuing these guys right now, as if that is more or less the case uh, is, is how I'm assembling my, my sort of um, valuation of these guys. And for me, I, I can't take Deontay Johnson before something like the 10th round. Um, I'm enough spooked by James Washington uh, with the James uh, the Chase Claypool selection for James Washington that I'm not really targeting him in best ball. But 
I do think he's worth the pick at his because he fell after the Claypool selection, but Johnson went up in the draft. I don't know how that works exactly. Um, it's like their Claypool is, should be a problem for them both. Um, so I knocked them both uh, accordingly, but Johnson went up and, and Washington fell in the draft. So I might take Washington if only because he's so cheap, even if I am creeped out by him because, you know, he had more yards than last year than this guy who's apparently going in the sixth and seventh round now. How bad can he really be? Um, so I'll take Washington sometimes, but I'm, I'm not going to get any Deontay Johnson shares. It's just, it's just not going to happen unless the price comes down and I, I really doubt it will. But Juju, I definitely, I think, I, I think I phrased it to John once, uh, like a month ago in the podcast, but, uh, I haven't been ending up with him very much in drafts in best ball drafts because I keep taking someone like Allen Robinson, um, or somebody else. I can't remember in the third round, but it's one of those things where I want to take Juju Smith Schuster. I, I just, I just, uh, I can't – if I could, I would trade up from, you know, my fifth-round pick. Like, I'd say to the, somebody on the clock after me, after I take Allen Robinson, I'd call him and say, like, I'll, you can have my fifth and my sixth if I can have, you know, that pick, and then I'd take Juju. But um, unfortunately, I can't really do that in, in best ball drafts, so I, I haven't gotten as many Juju shares as I'd like to. But, yeah, to me, he's a 100-catch player, and if he's a 100-catch player, I have no idea how Deontay Johnson meets value for, for what people are expecting of him you get a pass because you're you're moving or in the process of moving but i i hear the ruffling of the papers around and i'm just picturing you like dr emmett brown from back to the future with these like crazy predictions and hair spread out uh like all the way as you're rattling off the pittsburgh steelers per target snap opportunities it just is it's a it's a humorous uh, antidote to me as i hear the papers ruffling in the background <laughs> yeah those are just my uh pet cranes my paper cranes that i <laughs> Surround myself with in bed. I don't have any notes. Okay, great, great. So you have your paper cranes with you. We talk about all these Pittsburgh Steelers receivers that have some sort of utility in some different fashion, whether or not they're meeting their value or not. How about the guy throwing to them, Ben Roethlisberger? So I took Ben Roethlisberger, uh, I guess this is a spoiler, but in the RotoWire magazine I did the standard draft, and I just waited till the very last round. And you know how this goes. In every industry draft we always wait on quarterbacks despite – that's not how most of the general pub, uh, public does that, so that always bothers me. But I took Roethlisberger with my very last pick, and I think it was like quarterback 14 or 13. And and while I kind of like all the other guys that are around there, I think um, Garoppolo was still left. I know Stafford was taken, but like Tannehill and Goff were available still. I like Roethlisberger to be one of those breakout candidates, or at least value picks as, if nothing else, a QB2, but I think he could be a very good uh, QB1 in a 12- or 14-team league. Like, you look at all those guys you mentioned, and, I again, I think Roethlisberger is going to be able to come back healthier than many people anticipate. And if that's the case, this is an offense that's always been built around him, at least for that past decade or so. Why are we supposed to assume it's going to change this go-around? I guess it's just the injury, really, and I don't know what to make of that. I guess... Uh... You know, there's not much concern around the team, so you could kind of take that for a good sign, or, or at least they didn't. Uh, you know, they didn't do the Carlos Hyde, Chris Cars, uh, Rashad Penny thing. Like they didn't sign some uh, Jameis. I guess they might have tried to sign Jameis Winston. I, I don't know if that was ever confirmed. That whole line about him uh, passing up more money with the Steelers to sign with the Saints, but uh, other than maybe that, I'm not aware of them doing a whole lot to to change their their backup quarterback situation. So either they're not worried or they are worried and they just decided to not do anything about it. And I guess the first one seems more likely. So if he's okay, 
and yeah, I don't, I don't really know what would be so bad. It's an elbow injury, and I know there's been speculation that it's been a Tommy John type procedure that he got. Um, I emailed Jeff Stotts the other day, Rotowire's uh, in street clothes individual. Uh, he's our, he's our injury expert. Uh, that, that, that we uh, have are lucky enough to have articles written for on the site sometimes and he was saying that it sounds like it wasn't a Tommy John so that sounds good not that I know what the difference is or what the, the alternative is but Tommy John's bad I know that um, so if it's not that that's that's reassuring I suppose but yeah I mean Roethlisberger is an older sort of quarterback he's never been known for his work ethic fairly or not he's not really known for working out a whole lot or taking you know his his shape that seriously so maybe that changed here maybe he realized this is serious and maybe he he really you know did everything he needed to maybe he'll be ready to go right away if he is then yeah he's a, he's a good value because i mean uh, it took a lot of pass attempts to get there but the last full season he played he led the league in uh, passing yardage yeah it did i'll say this it didn't look like he took his uh his whole body health necessarily seriously I'm i don't sure. think i'm being too harsh on him i think <laughs> no that's... no i don't i don't think so no either, i'm but, joking yeah but that's like, not that's not roethlisberger's the... thing and you acknowledge that i mean that's the, that's there's a lot of compliments or praises you can give to ben roethlisberger but um being in the best shape of his life is not necessarily one of those things that you'd use and i guess to be fair he probably hasn't really tried to claim it either I, I, or at least i feel like if, if ben roethlisberger came out and said something like i'm in the best shape of my life we would all we would all gather around and, and point and laugh at it right. <laughs> as we should if he, if he does if he does that will you know we'll have a good chuckle i don't know how much you take this into account when it comes to projections and i, I don't think you you should i i valued the steelers defense much higher because of this but have you seen what their schedule is for this year? They play the NFC East and the AFC South on huh. top of, you know, like their AFC North guys. And the Ravens, of course, are hard ones. And then, yeah, like you then you have the Colts and the Bills um, as part of that, that throw. And like there's maybe three games in the year where I'm not like, oh, he's going to throw for less than two or 250 yards. Just like the matchups work really really well for the Steelers this year and that's why I love their defense in particular if you're going that direction but I also think as we saw last year when you're able to play QB matchup at times you can make a lot of situations work week one against the Giants yes you're probably starting and probably not against the Broncos week two but Texans week three yeah Titans week four I don't know but the Eagles week five certainly and then you have the Browns week six like that's at least QB 10 in four of the six weeks to start the season yeah, uh, it could be. I Honestly, I don't really feel qualified to, to guess that much about the schedules at this point. I, I, I feel like defenses change so much each year, and I'm surprised by enough of the ones that change every year that I, I try not to get myself too worked up about schedules. Um, I am worried about Washington being a lot better, and but uh, yeah, I guess Dallas, the Giants, and the Eagles. The Eagles should be a better team, but I, I feel like because of they, they wouldn't really have an answer for Juju, even if Darius Slay is uh, shadowing him, I don't really think that would do a whole lot. But anyway, uh, I think the Eagles' defense will be better. I, I still think that um, regardless of, of my evaluation of the defenses that they're going against, as long as Roethlisberger's elbow is fine, then... I don't really see how he can fail as a pick because I, I just think uh, he's got a lot of really good receivers to throw to. The offensive line generally has been good, and hopefully that'll continue. So if if he's on the field, I even if he's not particularly good, it's like he'll throw the ball a lot because he's basically running the offense anyway, and he wants to throw the ball. So uh, if you throw the ball enough and your receivers are good enough, it doesn't really matter how bad you are or how tough your schedule is. The other part of this conversation is the running back position. We talked about it a little bit earlier with Anthony McFarland, who they drafted 
but obviously James Conner is still around. You also mentioned Jalen Samuels, who is a unique pass catcher in his own right, which would only prop up the idea that Roethlisberger could be a decent enough value at his spot. What do you feel about the, or how do you feel, I should say, about the running backs for the Steelers and their current ADPs, and is there maybe a guy that needs to be targeted a little bit sooner than he's currently going? Well, James Conner used to be really cheap. He used to fall, I want to say I saw him in the fifth maybe once or twice. This is like a couple months ago before the draft or at least. Um, I noticed now in the past week he's up to 39th overall. Still too low in my opinion. Um, I, like He's at 39 and let's see, the next running back is Devin Singletary. I have a, I have a wide gulf between those two. If I, if I picked Devin Singletary a few picks after James Conner, I'd be sick. But I, I see Chris Carson at 34, James Conner at 39. Those are the running backs that I'm considering in that range. I, I, I would consider Melvin Gordon if he was the same price and Todd Gurley if he was the same price, but they're up at 28 and 29. So uh, I evaluate those guys pretty similarly and uh, down at 39. I understand that James Conner's gotten hurt each of the last two years, and he also had, a, I want to say, a torn MCL at Pittsburgh. But there seem to be some people who are doubting his talent level and and they seem to believe that if if the Steelers are in a competitive game and if James Conner's healthy that they might go to Benny Snell or Anthony McFarland and I I mean I like Jalen Samuels I I don't think though that I would consider him as good as as good as Jalen Samuels is as a pass catcher like James Conner's way up there too and I wouldn't have expected that because he didn't really catch the ball at Pittsburgh in college Um, but he's been pretty much automatic as a pass catcher and I think that um, one way that Connor could really do well is if Roethlisberger's checking down a bit more if he if he's lost a little bit of velocity on his throws and if, if he's taking a little longer to wind up he might be a bit more check down prone kind of like Philip Rivers late in his career and if he is it would be understandable because James Connor would be it would usually work out if he, if he chose to do that. So uh, that's one way he could really go gangbusters, I think. Um, I'm projecting 71 targets in 15 games for Connor, catching 57 for 460 yards, running for 890 or so yards. So uh, to me, he's a borderline running back one or maybe even a clear running back one, uh, especially in PPR, as long as he's healthy. And I, I get that the health is a concern, but it's not really a chronic sort of thing that he's had, so it's basically bad luck as far as I can tell. And I can't imagine otherwise how you would look at James Conner and see more risk than you would in Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Leonard Fournette, Jonathan Taylor even. I, I love Taylor. Uh, in, in the front of a draft, though, I'm not taking Taylor over Conner because uh, there's Conner's going to be the starter like it's he will he he might not play because he got hurt but it's not like he's going to be healthy and not playing it's it's just a ridiculous idea in my opinion see i'll take clyde edwards hilaire over james connor i I think and this is and this is part of the problem that we just discussed with justice hill and i and i am well aware that i am i am part of this problem and i do the same thing but this new shiny toy that we have and given the draft stock that was invested in him and Damian Williams also being an injury concern too, and, and what that means, and and truthfully, what Clyde Edwards-Helaire, he's probably more of a best ball selection over James Conner, but what he could do in the games where he is the feature guy is really, really enticing to me over James Conner, where I I was burned last year. I think a lot of people are burned too, and and it's great the projections projections that you outlined, that would be pretty close to what he did uh, two years ago, only in 13 games instead of 15 games, which I I know makes a difference, but. Um, maybe not so much. Like I, that, that's where I'd go with Clyde Witcher Lair. But otherwise, 
yeah, I, I, I would definitely take Connor over Melvin Gordon. I'm completely out on Gordon with the Broncos' offense right now, and I'm not convinced that Drew Locke is very good either. So when you look at some of those options around him, I, I talk myself into Connor more and more when I wasn't necessarily feeling that way probably early this offseason. Yeah, I mean, it, it sucks to have an injured player, uh, but yeah, if if the guy doesn't get hurt next year and someone passes on him because he was hurt the year before, they'll they'll really be feeling bad. Yeah, and, and Jerry actually outlined that in one of his articles, talking about guys that might have the uh, incorrect notion that they're in, uh, injury-prone or that if they can shake off that label, what that means. It was definitely a good article on the site, and if you can get through all the team previews that are currently going up there, um, it's I think it's probably in the last two weeks or not, so that was discussed. Um, okay, so we talked about the Steelers running backs. I feel like we've kind of handled the whole offense, so to speak. Was there anybody else that you kind of went over in your projections and, and took a double take at? Uh, not really. I ended up with about 300 snaps for Chase Claypool, about 500 for Ebron, and about 600 for Vance McDonald. Uh, I'm not chasing Ebron or McDonald. I just don't care. No, and I know a lot of people who are in on Ebron, and uh, they were the same people that were in on Ebron last year and are just able to ignore it completely. Like, it didn't didn't matter whatsoever. Some, like, other people that I know uh, in this world. So, yeah, um, I... I'm, I'm going to go too far into that. Uh, let's move over to Austin Eckler, who I know was also another guy that you were interested in when it comes to the projections in their ADP. Right. So I was surprised, actually today, I was surprised to notice that he's going about 16th overall, uh, 17th overall in the best ball tens in the past uh, week. And I was, I was interested specifically in how these – Three players, Aaron Jones, Miles Sanders, Kenyon Drake, and Josh Jacobs, I guess, is on uh, on Best Ball 10s is going ahead of him. I feel like Aaron Jones at 11, Miles Sanders at 12, Austin Eckler at 17 is just kind of wrong. I, I think Kenyon Drake ahead of him rubs me the wrong way a little bit, too. And I get what people are saying about Eckler. I get the concerns because, obviously, Phillip Rivers was a, a check-down machine, and that perfectly suited Austin Eckler because he's great pass catcher, maybe the best pass catcher among running backs in the NFL right now. Like I know Christian McCaffrey's way up there and there's, there's a couple other really sick contenders, but what Austin Eckler did last year is insane. And it's the kind of insanity that yes, you look at it in, in, in the terms of its peaks in efficiency and returns on a, on a per touch per snap basis. You assume you will regress from those points just because they're so insanely high but it's also one of those things where he passed a threshold that i think only great players can reach i don't think mike furry has a season like this there's no like there's no running back who just did what austin eckler did and then faded away because the offensive coordinator changed or something like that's not what happens the only kind of player who had numbers like austin eckler as a pass catcher last year i can't remember the exact thresholds that i set in the the query on pro football reference um but it was something like 80% 80% catch rate or higher and uh, eight yards per target or higher at a volume over 500 yards. And the only other running back to do it going back to 1999, uh, or actually it was probably, it might've been further than that. I can't remember. Cause there's I don't, no, their target data doesn't, 
it, sorry, the target data goes at least to like 88 or something or 92. I can't remember. Um, in any case, the only hit in whatever this time frame that I said, it might have been for the whole league's history. I can't remember. The only result was Marshall Falk in 1999. Mm. That's the only other player who hit those thresholds that Austin Eckler did. And I get that he's going to regress. But the thing is, when you put up the insane numbers that he did last year, you can incur the regression that's coming ahead, especially since Melvin Gordon isn't there anymore. Like, I don't understand what people are th- like thinking with this. So unless you believe that Justin Jackson and, and Josh Kelly are somewhat equals to Eckler, which would be absurd, I don't understand how there's even like the starting point of that reasoning. Like, I, I don't under- I, I, It feels to me like it's just completely arbitrary. Right. I got uh, it for you. I got it for you. Justin Jackson and Joshua Kelly are not equal to Melvin or sorry, not equal Austin Eckler. But I believe the Chargers coaching staff and general manager group, just from all the comments they said, uh, really throughout the draft and the offseason, believe that Jackson and Kelly are equal to Melvin Gordon. And if you had a full season of Melvin Gordon, what would Eckler's numbers look like, right? Because those those first four games, Eckler did incredible things because Gordon was not there. But let's just assume that Jackson Kelly combination the Chargers believe is equal to Gordon. Would that hurt Eckler's numbers more? No, I don't really see it personally because the way these things tend to work out is Kelly and Jackson will equal what Gordon did if they kind of force the issue that way. And I don't see why they would set aside the workload for those two that they did for Gordon. Like Gordon, they did it to justify his standing with the team. You know, he's the franchise uh, player. He's a former first round pick, stuff like that. They need to justify a player like that, and you know most teams will do what they did last year, which is force him on the field no matter how bad he's playing. And that's why Gordon took that work. It wasn't because Eckler failed or had some limitation. And Kelly, Justin Jackson, especially Justin Jackson, and I mean I hope I'm wrong about this, but that guy's going to get blacklisted from the NFL, um, not not for fair reasons, but like it's going to happen. Um, and Josh Kelly, I like him a bit. I think he's underrated as a rookie, actually. Like, I, I think he's, um, I'd probably rank him the same as Darrington Evans or somebody else that went in the third round, um, or at least somebody that went ahead of Kelly in the fourth. But Austin Eckler, again, is the kind of talent who can do what someone only like Marshall Falk was otherwise able to do. And if someone is capable of doing Marshall Falk things, then I don't think players like Jackson and, and Kelly are going to be on the field as much as people think. Like there's, there's not going to be a by default spot for them because the charges will need to actually move the ball. And if they want to move the ball, then Eckler is the best option for doing it. That's both, especially as a pass catcher, of course, where I really do think there's a case that he's the most dangerous pass catcher among NFL running backs, but he's also an above average runner. People don't seem to remember that. Like they think like, oh, well, if, if, the, if Tyrod Taylor's not throwing to Eckler and checkdowns as much, then that's that. I guess it's uh, it's all going to Justin Jackson instead. And it's like, no, he's all – Austin Eckler is also the best pure runner on that team. He's a standout. He put, he put up ridiculous numbers. I don't even remember what college he played at, Western Colorado fake school of some kind. Um, but yeah. yeah, something like that. And he was, he was going with these huge rushing numbers, um, just totally annihilating that level and then at his pro day he posted i mean you can also see these workout videos of his it's it's easy to see that he's a guy with like a 40 inch vertical super athletic so the idea that he isn't this good the the idea that the numbers that he's posted basically aren't real because he's like an undrafted guy who lost carries to melvin gordon um it's it's just 
not pertinent information to me. Like it's, it's all nonsense. I don't care. Um, he, he put up big numbers every time he's gotten the ball going back to college. He's one of the best athletes at running back in the league. He just did something last year that only Marshall Falk was able to do. Otherwise, I feel like it's overthinking to, to, to stray too far from those facts. That's, that's just kind of how I see it. I, f- I feel like this guy is, a, and also as, as a runner, um, in a span where, uh, in his career, in his three-year career, the Chargers running backs aside from him averaged 4.1 yards per carry. He averaged 4.8. Uh, over 285 carries, he's averaged 4.8. So that's that's a plenty good sample. It's not like he had a couple draw plays that inflated his average. Like, he's a good runner. So if there's running to do, I think he'll be their best option. And if there's pass catching to do, he will be the best option by about you know 10 magnitudes or right. something. And um, as far as the, the Rivers checkdown concern, like that's fair. But if you've watched Eckler enough, you'd also know that he's a killer downfield target. Like he doesn't just catch dump off passes and run for eight yards over and over and like pile up these cheap stats uh, <laughs> like Miles Sanders did last year. Uh, Austin Eckler is a killer downfield receiver he's a killer running against corners his double move will will knock over a lot of safeties and if they got to throw to him downfield fine they can do that but the other thing is tyrod taylor's a check down guy too it doesn't matter exactly i i I completely there there are three things in this conversation i i completely agree with you the offense is staying the same the offensive coordinator is still there. They will still run their three or four screen passes per game to Austin Eckler in addition to two or three design passes out of the backfield that they're going to do to him. He's going to get at least four or five targets, regardless of if Justin Herbert, myself, or Tyrod Taylor is quarterback. That is that is part of their offense. That's part of their game plan. It's been part of the way they've done things with Austin Eckler really in 2017, but certainly last year and uh, in, in oh, yeah, certainly last year as well. I really should say 2018. That's kind of when they figured out, oh, shit, we have a good player in our hands. Let's figure out how to use him. So the offense is going to stay the same. Tyrod Taylor is the same player as Phillip Rivers at their respective points of their career, except Taylor can run. And maybe yeah. that cuts away from three or four targets I mean, not three or four. I, I don't know. You are more the projection guy than I am, but I just don't think that's going to take away that many uh, more targets. Yeah, those are uh, th- those carries are coming from uh, Justin Jackson. I don't know. It's like or, it's or like a, instead of a Mike Williams also it's, bomb that they did last year, that'll be a run for four yards for Tyrod Taylor. Like that, uh, that's where that comes to play. Yeah. Also, the the Tyrod Taylor running thing, like that guy runs when he scrambles. Basically, he's yeah. not. He doesn't have a big frame. I mean, he's decently built, but like he's never been. Uh, not since Virginia Tech, anyway. He's not been a guy who will just like carry the ball as as a part of the offense's identity. So uh, he ran about a hundred times a year. Um, would project to, no, about a hundred times a year in Buffalo. Uh, that of course is a lot more than what Philip Rivers ran, but um, the way I see it, it, it really is just as simple as uh, those carries that Tyrod Taylor takes from the running backs are going to. That's going to be the problem of Kelly and uh, Justin Jackson because Justin Jackson, I like him, but he, he's only like a rotational player. He, he's got a lanky frame. He's not exactly like a burning athlete. Like he's he's a, a quick guy. He's a dicing kind of runner, um, adequate pass catcher, stuff like that. Um, but he doesn't play he, – he can't take that many reps really with the ball. And Kelly – I don't know. It's it, For me, those two will work out on a situational basis. Like they'll probably go to Kelly a little bit more if they've got a clock to kill, uh, which there's not much reason to believe that they ever will. But if they do, Kelly's <laughs> a little heavier. Improving. That defense is improving. 
Yeah, the defense should be pretty good. Who knows? Um, but, um, yeah, Justin Jackson, I think, will be more of like a hurry-up change of pace. It's like he'll be in there when they need a big play and Eckler needs a breather. And Kelly will be in there when they – maybe it's like he'll be in there for some short yardage opportunities at Eckler's expense. But otherwise, I, I don't think he's going to be in there on more than a breather basis. The Chargers this – is, this is the one concern I had. When Gordon came back, the Chargers had no reason to really throw him into the role that he had in previous seasons. By all indication, they were not going to bring him back. They refused to give him that contract. He threw his little hissy fit and then came back, basically lost that fight. And I, I'm pro player, by the way, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't say hissy fit necessarily. But, I mean, like the, that felt like it was not going to reach a conclusion where Gordon was ever going to be part of the Chargers uh, next season. So they didn't really have to put him in that role but yet they chose to do so, and they chose to continue to do so despite his inefficient carry opportunities. I think it's more of a system of the offense, that they they like to have Eckler as this guy that can be explosive, that only gets seven or eight carries, but does six yards per carry with those, and then comes out in the passing situations. Weeks one through four, he averaged 4.8, 3.9, 4 yards, and 3.3. That's fine. He had over 10, well, he had 12, 17, 9, 18 carries in those four games, but he wasn't this super efficient Marshall Falk runner when he was the main guy. And I think they want him to be that Marshall Falk type of player, but in order to do so, they need to use Justin Jackson and Joshua Kelly in that Gordon kind of capacity. And, and maybe Jackson and Kelly will be just so bad that they can't at like you were saying, but I just feel like they have shoehorned Gordon into that role for two years too long and all indication from every conversation, quote, and whatever else that I've read from the Chargers seems to indicate they want Jackson and Kelly to do the same thing. I mean, maybe. I, I think that they gave Gordon the ball because he was a first-round pick, and they, if anything else, or if nothing else, they had an incentive in reestablishing his market because they weren't going to re-sign him in the higher dollar figure that he signs for, the better the compensatory pick they might get. But, again... I, I just think that the evidence is clear that Austin Eckler is a better runner than these two. And teams are free to forfeit if they want, but I just can't really assume they will like that. I, I just, you know, I, I agree with you, and I, I 100% agree Eckler is the better runner. And even if he ends up getting 12 carries instead of his normal 7 or 8 like they seem to want to, big deal. Like I, I just don't think that really adds that much wear and tear on him because everyone thinks, hey, he's this small running back. And you've pointed out time and time again, like, metric wise there no he's he's really stout for his body type he's he's pretty physically fit we really haven't seen injury concerns from him necessarily i don't know if they think he can handle a starter workload and when i think of starter workload i think of what they did with melvin gordon and that's where kelly and jackson come into play but he probably should get a starter workload i just don't you're right <laughs> if teams want to forfeit they can i feel like the chargers haven't done a lot of smart things in a number of years and every indication they've given this offseason is that they're going to continue to do not smart things yeah uh i mean it, it could be the case but i i feel like to, to zoom back out a little aaron jones going six spots earlier with aj dillon there with that likely touchdown regression uh likely to occur regardless of Dylan being there and, and in my opinion made certain by the fact of his arrival I don't see what what the theory is there and I, I, I think that whereas whereas with Eckler I, I guess I just don't understand how people get to the the uh, 
Kelly and Jackson equaling Dylan kind of thing, especially with the higher bar that Jones needs to reach as, as an earlier pick. And with Miles Sanders, it's like, I know he was good last year, but he still never really showed a convincing ability to run out of the backfield behind blockers. Like he, he kept killing in space over and over and Carson Wentz kept checking down because defenses basically just weren't accounting for him. And, and that, they will still be difficult to account for him given the tight ends and the attention that they draw in the middle of the field. But defenses are going to pay different attention to Miles Sanders next year. With Eckler, I don't think there's anything they can do. Like He's just too good. And I don't think that Tyrod Taylor will change the complexion of the offense to basically knock off Eckler from, from what he was able to do um, with reasonable regression accounted for uh, for what he did last year because he played only 609 snaps. It's not like he was, it's not like he inflated his numbers by playing some snap count that he can't reach again. I think he'll play more than 609 snaps if it's a 16 game season. Yeah. And, and I think if they, if the chargers have their way, it's not going to be much more than 609 snaps. And, and maybe Again, Jackson and Kelly just stink so bad that they have to put him out there. But I do not think they are like actively planning, hey, we're going to get Eckler 700, 800, 900 plays or in that range. I just don't think that's what they want to do with him, and I don't understand why. They obviously have some indication or reason as to why they're choosing a wrong route. I just don't get it, I, and I, I don't think I ever will. I just don't think that's the, the route they're going to go. But back to what you're saying with the guys around their ADP, I agree. Aaron Jones is – there's going to be a touchdown regression, whether it be from Rodgers throwing more touchdown passes, A.J. Dillon getting more opportunities, or the Packers' offense just not simply scoring as often as a, and as willfully as they did in the red zone. I just don't see that occurring. I am probably the – like the, the I probably despise Kenyon Drake more than anybody else in the fantasy community right now. I just – I absolutely do not like him for irrational reasons, and I will gladly admit they're irrational reasons. I would still take – um, Kenyon Drake over Aaron Jones. I'd take Austin Eckler over Aaron Jones, but I think I'd have Josh Jacobs over both of them, and I'd have all those guys over Miles Sanders. That's the one that, to me, out of this whole discussion, I'm most confused by, especially given how the Eagles have been so proactive in trying to complete their running back by committee. Like it's, I just don't, I don't get that. I don't get why the love for Miles Sanders is so high. That needs to be an article from somebody, whether it be you, Jerry, John. I don't know. Maybe we need to think- list on it. I think Sanders would be fine at his old price, which is basically the current Eckler price. But um, for me, I just I just think Eckler is one of the very best running backs in the league. I don't think Justin Jackson or Kelly are particularly close, and I, I'm just not really worried about the Chargers coaches putting their best player on the bench that much. But I think in Jones's case, there's just so much touchdown dependency. The guy ran for 1,084 yards. So as much as someone might say, like, well, Austin Eckler doesn't even run the ball, dude. Like, at least Aaron Jones runs the ball. Like, he doesn't even run the ball that much. And that was before A.J. Dillon got there. So those those 16 touchdowns, I'm thinking, are more like 7 or 8 this year. That 1080 might be more like 950 or something like that. Eckler is just going to keep being one of the very best pass catchers. And I, I just don't think there's anyone who can mimic him. Uh, Kenny Drake, I guess it's just more like, I don't know if what to think about his durability or something like that, but uh, as long as he's playing against, uh, what was it, the Seahawks and Browns, I guess he'll be okay. Right. The, the Kenyon Drake soapbox is for a different day for me, but back to yeah. Aaron Jones, like you talked about the touchdown regression. Certainly, I even think there's going to be a receiving re- regression too. I don't know if the, the Packers receivers try as they might. 
uh, can be as bad as they did last year, or try as they might yeah. this past off season. So you're talking about almost 500 receiving yards that really for two or three games, he was the receiving option. And I just don't see that being the case again. So touchdown regression and receiving regression. I, and I'm a Packers fan. I, I, there's absolutely no way I'd be taking him where his current ADP is right now. That's the biggest takeaway for me right now is what the heck is going on with Miles Sanders and Aaron Jones is where they're getting drafted. Is that just because of the, the kind it's of a pass catching? Is it the inflation of the running backs overall because everyone wants to stay out of that weird round four, yeah. five, six zone? Yeah, there's definitely inflation there. And, and which, by the way, rather than I, as much as I'm saying Eckler over these guys, I still would get quite a bit of uh, receiver exposure in this area too. Like I, I wouldn't go 100% Eckler uh, from 15 or, or 12 or 11 or whatever. Because I more than the running backs, I prefer the receiver market, which is Tyreek Hill at 13, DeAndre Hopkins at 16, Julio Jones at 18. So uh, I prefer those guys over the likes of the non-Eckler running backs in that round, personally. Yeah, fair enough. This is this is one of those things. Last year, I was super in on the ADPs, and uh, life events have really made it so I, I haven't been in, super into the best balls necessarily. So I'm I'm gonna be I'm looking forward to getting back into that and kind of seeing why these trends are happening but you know you know especially Mario, how this goes it feels like everything changes by the end of august what we were talking about oh yeah in june and july you're it's like it's a different conversation and it was only 30 40 days ago yeah i mean to be honest if you're if you're going with any considerable volume in best ball you'll want to do some pretty much all year like you'll want to uh, get some exposure to to the various market stages because for all you know, there, there could be some cataclysmic event that uh, in all the months or in the one month that you don't draft that that makes the prices fluctuate that kind of screws up your past shares. And, and maybe if you had drafted a couple teams in that month, you would have, you know, uh, adjusted your, your shares and, and, and accounted for it. So it's things do change a lot. And you, you want to get a little you at least want to investigate whether you want to get some action on some particular market, because uh, if, if it looks like an opportunistic market, you go in, I guess. And then um, you wait for it to change after you get a few shares, I guess. That was the Lamar Jackson market for me last year. I think that was the first time I've really actively dived into best balls. And it was built entirely off the premise of why Lamar Jackson is so low right now. And it was a handsome reward for me. I felt I felt pretty yeah. successful in my first venture. And uh, even the year before Next. that, Patrick Mahomes too, right? Like that was another. Uh, like I think he was like the tenth quarterback selected. He was uh, going real late. Just, he was he was going around like Mitch Trubisky and stuff like right. that. Right, and it's just it's just absurd to think about, right? Uh, and and now this year, those quarterbacks, the tenth, eleventh quarterbacks overall, are Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Baker Mayfield. None of them necessarily scream the potential of Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. But when you go down a little bit later, Tom Brady, Matthew Stafford, Ben Roethlisberger, even Breeze and Rodgers, we have we have personally ranked pretty low in that in that quarterback conversation. It, it, they might not have the same sort of value that Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes have, but that again is a conversation that hey, you can you can try to target some of those guys later on. Yeah, I mean this. I think Lamar and Pat Mahomes kind of changed the game a bit, yes. though. Like this year, I'm I'm trying to get. If I, not that I'm reaching for those two specifically, but I at least feel some pressure to get like a Deshaun Watson, Dak Prescott, Kyler Murray kind of quarterback just because um, I don't know, man. It's 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 hard to keep up. It's like last year, if you go against Lamar, you're just kind of you just lose. Exactly. And maybe maybe not in a best ball way. I still feel like I I'm not going to be opposed to taking Mahomes or Jackson if they get to that point. And, I, and no, I, not at all. Like I, I I just won't. I don't think I'll ever fade any one of those guys. And and maybe. Maybe it's because I got burned a little bit with Baker Mayfield last year, 
where I might not be aggressive in that second-tier quarterback range. Yeah, that's because, fair. Because there are so many options I feel comfortable with later on. But that isn't necessarily a great formula for best ball because, we, as we saw, you need to have those guys that are, are consistently getting you 20, 25, 30 points, and that happens now because of their legs. I mean, this is I know this is a conversation that everyone's heard before and knows, but it's still worth pointing out that those guys are uniquely valuable for the skills that they possess relative to the peers who don't. Yeah, uh, for this for this year, it, I feel like the market's changed a little bit at quarterback, and part of it is not just that uh, Lamar and Mahomes have raised the, the, the ceiling so much. It's that uh, there's there are those guys like Dak, Deshaun, Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, and then after that, there's a huge gap, I feel, or a, a huge drop-off, in my opinion, because you're basically next to, like, Kirshen Wentz and Josh Allen and Matt Ryan and whatever. They should be fine, um, but they're more like 8 to 10 every week, and that 1 to 5 gap from 1 to 5 to 5 to 8 I think will be bigger you know last year this year the upcoming year than it would have been you know five years ago or something um and that and you know you could always get away with waiting on tight end or at least most years you know last year there's Waller there's there's usually ways two years ago Kittle and Ebron were were both going in like the 12th round and then receivers really deep so it actually makes sense this year I think to kind of take take a couple or especially one really early stab at running back, uh, maybe two. And then it makes sense to go at Lamar or Mahomes if you're lucky enough to, to account for running back because receivers as deep as I've ever seen it. So you can usually wait at receiver, or at least I think you can get away with waiting at receiver more this year than, than at quarterback, and that used to be totally the opposite. Yeah, eloquently put. I think that's that's a good summation, too. So that does it for us on the RotoWire NFL podcast. This will hopefully be the last time I'm speaking with you, Mario, for a little while. I know that the mustache-toed uh, John McKechnie should be back next week to break everything down with you. But it's been great uh, talking football the last two weeks, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, thanks a lot for uh, helping re- replace John and, and keep keep the show afloat because I, I don't know how do, to do I it. I can only do so much. There's there's just an energy that John brings that I can't have. Uh, but, you know, it'll be great. And, uh, a thanks- crucial energy all the same. <laughs> and thanks for stepping up, man. And thanks to the listeners for powering through. And, again, next week it should be John and Mario returning to break down some more NFL action. Stay tuned.